Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 2, Resurrection Day. Between 2057 and 2069, the people of Earth faced many trials. Scarcity of resources, plagues, poverty, famine, and despair. The superpowers of the Earth fell into factions, each armed with its own doomsday arsenal. Diplomacy failed, and civilization came to an end. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. General Benjamin Castro, the Israeli government's special envoy to the United Nations, was relocated from the UN headquarters in New York City to an underground base. During transport, General Castro was knocked unconscious and preserved in cryostasis. The general awoke 43 years later, in a subterranean society built by survivors of the United Nations. Revived by the Phoenix Project, General Castro was introduced to Phoenix law enforcement officer Major Leonard McGillicuddy and Professor John Bath. If they could work together, Castro, Cuddy, and Bath would lead the first expedition to the Earth's surface. Aided by Project Administrator Danielle Devenu, Chief Surgeon Miro Ganaya, and Engineer Donna Chang, their mission was to determine what life still existed on the world above and if the survivors in the underground Phoenix Project could return. The group sat around a brushed, metal laboratory table. General Castro and Major McGillicuddy sat on one side. Dr. Ganaya and Engineer Chang sat opposite them. Agent Devenu stood nearby. While Dr. Bath paced, his back-and-forth motions a distraction to all. The technology was in its initial stages before the fall, Chang explained, her face expressionless. It was part of a secret Russian-Chinese collaboration. The use of an electronic second skin grafted onto an inorganic body. Cuddy exhaled. In English, please, doctor. So racist, Bath muttered. Simply put, Major, we take a pre-existing robot body in storage. We graft a gelatinous graphene pseudoskin over the machine, creating a fully functional simulacrum. Assuming it's still active, green-tooth cellular technology on the surface interacts with our transmitter underground. That was English? Castro waved a hand. I still don't. Devenu stepped closer. These robotic bodies are stored in a hermetically sealed technology compound on Liberty Island. You mean where the Statue of Liberty is? Cuddy asked. Bath shrugged. <laughs> Brilliant. Devenu continued. Each of you will lay in a mechanized coffin. Your brain waves and neural signals will be connected to machines in this lab that transmit to the robot bodies on Liberty Island. There, you will locate and adapt the second skin to the machine. The skin automatically adopts flesh and muscular characteristics transmitted by your brain here in the porcelain coffin. Castro groaned. Coffin. I don't like the sound of that. No kidding, Bath agreed. So let me get this correct, the general said. 
we get into a machine here. It transmits our brainwaves to a robot body on an island in New York. Technically New Jersey, said Bath. Castro continued. From there, we put this, this circuit board skin on. Then the robot will look like us? Correct, General, Chang responded. It will look like you, and it will sound like you. The only differences are that it will have no discernible human smell, and will be slightly slower than your human body when it is not near a working cellular tower. It will otherwise be more resilient, stronger, and able to weather the poisonous elements of the Earth's surface. What about our senses? asked Bath. Chang hesitated. She looked at Devenu. The body will not tire, Devenu added. Unless physically attacked, it will not suffer damage. You control the body here, while it explores... whatever is up there. Awesome. Cuddy was noticeably enthusiastic. I'm in. <laughs> Let's do this. Bath scoffed at the law enforcement officer. He looked at Ganaya, Chang, and Devenu. That's what you brought me down here for? Uh-uh. No way. Look, it's nice to know General Castro could be, uh, thawed or whatever, but your little project already cost him the use of his legs. As fascinating as all this sounds, I'm not getting in your little machine built more than a half a century ago. I'm not letting it mangle my brain. That's all you have anyway, isn't it? Major McGillicuddy stood, his hands on the table. His massive shoulders pointed at Bath across the room. You're a coward. As if to show he wasn't afraid of the larger man, Dr. Bath rounded the table to where McGillicuddy stood. The law enforcement officer was at least three inches taller. Hey. Bath stood straight, but was physically unimpressive next to Cuddy. Until this morning, I didn't know you. And you don't know me, pig. Cuddy closed the distance between them. Say it again, and I'll... Devenu stood. She tried to get between the two men, but was unsuccessful. The best she could do was stand nearby. The Shadow Council knows all about you, Dr. Bath, Devenu said directly. Oh, what? Devenu crossed her arms. Shall I? Bath backed off Major McGillicuddy so he could face Devenu. By all means, he said. You were raised by your mother after your father disappeared. You were forced into psychiatric observation due to problems socializing with other students. You successfully fooled your psychotherapist, who abruptly ended his practice. You self-analyzed yourself into social normalcy and became the protege of the Dean of the Academy. You were recognized as having the highest intellectual aptitude of your generation. You enrolled as an understudy apprentice in the field of physics, but swiftly switched to psychology. By 22, you held master's degrees in neuropsychology, linguistics, and a bachelor's degree in geology. At 23, you finished your doctorate in philosophy with an emphasis on postmodern linguistics, cryptography, and anthropological symbology. Should I go on? No. Bath shrugged, defeated. Why not? Cuddy grinned. Got any deep, dark secrets, Dr. Bath? Devenu continued, giving no sign of concern or amusement. You're well-read, well-written, and well-published. Loathed by faculty, and admired by your students. You've lived in the same housing district on the upper level with your roommate Mike Helms, an exterminator, and the only person who seems to tolerate you or your occasional lapses into hypomania. Hypomania? General Castro asked. Antisocial or ultra-social behavior, 
Luke and I whispered across a table, fluctuations in mood ranging from appropriate behavior to malaise, dynamic bursts of high-level, three-dimensional creative thinking to impossibly low, depressive-like states. Devenu faced Dr. Bath, her calculated stare seeming to hold him in place. You've slept with your benefactors, but you draw the line at your students. You've been the subject of one male student some more, while you secretly long for enough, fine. Bath turned his back on Devenu. For some reason, he found it difficult to face those at the table, people he didn't know, people he would potentially have to work with if forced. That's okay, whatever, damn it. And, Devenu withdrew a little but raised her voice, you are an avowed atheist who writes on the intersection of politics, primarily anarcho-syndicalism and the socioeconomics associated with subterranean habitation. What's wrong with you people? Bath slouched against the table. Cuddy turned to Devenu. Go back to the part about secretly lusting for someone. Dr. Bath wasn't surprised a central processor and shadow council knew so much about him. He just didn't appreciate it being shared openly. If asked, Dr. Bath would like to say he lived a life without secrets, but the truth was, in the underground, the Phoenix Project, the difference between objective truth and what was considered a secret was subjective, especially when it came to the authority of the computer and the Shadow Council. I didn't mean to humiliate you, Dr. Bath, Devenu turned slightly. To prove my point, she rotated to face Major McGillicuddy's back. It wouldn't be fair to analyze you without an assessment of the Major's qualifications. She turned to Cuddy, who, up until this point, sincerely believed his role in Phoenix law enforcement meant he was immune from the observations of the Central Processor and Shadow Council. What? Cuddy said, surprised. Now wait just a minute. Major McGillicuddy knew the surveillance operations of the Phoenix Project well. Was it possible that he was also a subject of surveillance and investigation? Devenu strolled around the table. She looked at General Castro, then at Major McGillicuddy. Major, you were raised by your mother and father in the Phoenix Project. Groomed from an early age to work in law enforcement, your first assignments were primarily patrolling and rooting out ordinance violations. You have completed successful investigations on criminal activity, usually through unapproved but not necessarily unwarranted interrogations. After your parents passed away, you were informally adopted by the then Major, now Colonel, of the Phoenix Law Division. Colonel Marsh trained you, nurtured your talents in martial arts, the application of large and small stun weaponry, and encouraged you to go into the investigations wing of the force. You have been especially successful leading crowd control operations as an inspector and as a strong-arm negotiator. Now hang on, Cuddy protested. I haven't... Bath crossed his arms in front of him, a satisfied expression on his face. He watched Cuddy, saying nothing. Devenu continued. Despite numerous complaints from citizens about your tactics, which have been described as unconventional, bullying, or brutal, and the fact that you were once taken off active duty for employing a restricted chokehold technique that injured Cuddy threw his hands up. Wait a minute, that was a dangerous assailant who tried to kill his wife and kids over a damn cheeseburger. Devenu paused, her lips parted as if to whistle. She smiled knowingly. She glanced over her shoulder at Dr. Bath, then back at Major McGillicuddy. I was going to say 
you were exonerated, most likely because of your relationship with your colonel. Your psychiatric profile denotes you have conflicting feelings of sexual desire for your adopted mother. Bath shook his head and walked over to Cuddy. <laughs> now that's rich, he said, testing the other man. You son of a bitch, Cuddy flexed, flaring. I should... Devenu turned from McGillicuddy. She ignored Bath, who was coming closer to the table. Instead, Agent Devenu looked right at Castro, her expression seeming to explain she was speaking to him, not them. She was telling him who his team was, what they had done, what they stood for. Shall I continue? asked Devenu. Castro watched Dr. Bath and Major McGillicuddy. He studied their mannerisms, their interaction. He calculated their reactions to the information being shared. How invested were they in their own identities? Could he use that in their upcoming assignment? Go on, Castro told Devenu. Major, Devenu circled the table, slowly. You are the force's head patrol officer, lead negotiator, and an accomplished interrogator. Other than your colonel, you are the only member of the force who has ever shot a projectile weapon. You are the only officer, including your colonel, qualified to use these weapons. In short, you are a man of action, honor, and duty. You are the only person on this station capable of protecting this team. Well, I appreciate the compliment, Cuddy said, irritated, but all that shit was supposed to be kept confidential. How does your central processor, your computer, know all this? Castro asked. Chang stood in front of the seated general. An amalgamation of electronic visual and auditory surveillance, testimony of paid witnesses, and direct inputs, she said. Algorithms help extrapolate, but quite simply, the computer sees and knows everything. No privacy. Castro spoke quietly, almost under his breath. That's dangerous. It's a total invasion, Bath raised his voice. A suffocating lack of liberty, and it has consequences no one wants to talk about. Only if you have something to hide, said Cuddy. Oh, really, Mr. Keep It Confidential? <laughs> like your conflicting sexual desires for your colonel? With one swift blow, Major McGillicuddy struck Dr. Bath's shoulder, sending him to the floor. The wiry professor looked up in pain, but without fear. His eyes locked on those of the Major. Get up. McGillicuddy towered over Bath, his fists clenched. Let's go. Are you serious? Bath said, catching his breath. What would be the point? That's enough, General Castro said, his tone cold and serious. I've heard enough. If I understand this correctly, your central processor selected the best recruits. Each person here is critical to exploring the surface, finding out what's left. If we, as a society, can return. Yes, Devenu confirmed. Precisely. Castro continued. I've had men under my commands who didn't get along. I fought alongside leaders and their soldiers I couldn't stand. But we respect each other's gifts. If the stakes are as high as you say, we don't have to like each other to accomplish the mission. Ganaya stood next to Chang and Devenu. Agreed, she said. Then you'll do it, Devenu said to Castro, her words a statement not a question. No. Bath stood. He rubbed his bruised shoulder. Cuddy shook his head. <laughs> not with Bath, I won't. Like hell. Castro looked up at the two men. They were both men of conviction. 
He couldn't help but admire them for different reasons, and was anxious to see if he could polish their rough edges. I didn't ask to be thawed, taken out of deep freeze to lead this unit, but here I am, and from what I hear, we can't do it without you. Either of you. So make peace with that. You're in. And in my command, men have discipline. So find it quick. Or legs or no legs. I'll personally be so far up your asses, you'll need a compass to find me. This isn't fair, Bath protested. General Castro looked at the professor, his eyes narrowing intently. Neither was the destruction of the free world, doctor. After several hours going over the requirements of their training and the logistics of the operation of the service, Dr. Bath made his way up to the common area. He was hungry, and he wanted to be left alone. As usual, his roommate Mike found him. His former student, Harumi Gale, wasn't far behind. John, Mike said anxiously, I've been looking all over for you. What happened with the cops, that guy this morning? Nothing, Bath said. It was just a mistake. Mike shrugged. I've never heard of the fuzz making a mistake. They must have wanted something. What did you do now? Was it because... Just drop it, Mike, okay? I can't talk about it. Mike stared at John. He had a habit of doing this, and was surprisingly good at prying information out of his friend. They may have been from different social classes, but they had lived together for more than 25 years. They knew each other's ticks and tells. You're in some kind of trouble, Mike spoke quietly, aren't you? The words were barely out of Mike's mouth when John looked up to see the young, attractive Asian woman who so often preoccupied his thoughts. Dr. Bath is always in trouble, teased Harumi Gale. You mind if I sit? Uh, hey, Harumi, Mike motioned to the table. What's wrong with him? Harumi nudged her former professor. Phoenix law enforcement came for him this morning, Mike told her. Took him to the lab. The lab? Harumi looked concerned. It wasn't anything. Bath looked down at his food, annoyed. Well, it scared the hell out of me, said Mike. If I know John, Harumi mused, he's dying to talk about it. Someone else doesn't want him to talk about it. Listen, Mike got up from the table. I have to go on duty. There was a rat infestation on Block 901. That's good eating. Maybe I'll bring some home for dinner. Harumi smiled pleasantly at Mike, and then gazed across the table at Dr. Bath. John's a vegetarian, she said, matter-of-factly. Well, I, I meant for me and Mindy, Mike said, mentioning his longtime girlfriend. Fresh meat is still a delicacy, you know. Look, John, if you need to talk, I'll see you later, Mike. Dr. Bath glanced down. As she frequently did, Harumi leaned in, her hands placed nearby, fingertips not far from Bath's own. He really cares about you, she said. Yeah, said John. He's a good man. Better to keep him out of this. Out of what? Let me ask you something. Bath turned to Harumi. Well, that's not like you, she said. What? To ask before speaking your mind. Harumi leaned back, but her hands remained near Bath's. I was concerned before. Now, I'm intrigued. Get off it, Harumi. Bath ignored her come on. That's beneath you. 
Harumi turned her head sideways, a suggestive look showing both invitation and concern. Her thin hands hovered over Dr. Bath's food. She picked at some rubbery carrots, then settled on strips of reconstituted potatoes fried in artificial fat. And in the meantime, she asked, Mike said you were taken to the lab by law enforcement? Yeah, Bath lied. It was a misunderstanding. You're hiding something. So you've got secrets from Mike and from me? Harumi flicked one of the potatoes in her mouth. Everyone has secrets, said Bath. But not you, Harumi shot back. You abhor lies and secrets, the perpetual machinery that turns the masses against each other. There was a long pause between them. Then Harumi asked, What were you going to ask me anyway? She dropped the food back on Bath's tray. John hesitated. He sighed. Are you still connected, you know, to the dissidents? Harumi retreated a little, her dark eyebrows turning down. I was never connected, John. That was a research project I did. You know I can't name my sources. That's what I was afraid of, said John. Why? she asked. You're considering... No, Bath shook his head. He glanced around, looking beyond the obvious surveillance cameras to the pinholes and recessed ceiling tiles. Of course not. I was thinking more about... us. About protecting you. If I do this thing they want me to do, I don't want there to be any questions. Nothing to come back to haunt us. Harumi withdrew her hands from near baths. You mean you, she replied. Yes, I mean me, Bath admitted. Harumi sighed. You know, John, sometimes I wonder if I'm attracted to you because you're so stubborn. She shrugged, irritated. I am not now, and never have been, connected to the dissidents. Is that what you want me to say? You're lying. <laughs> of course, Harumi leaned in again. But who are you going to tell? The central processor is always listening, said Bath. Harumi leaned in forward, her movements calculated to instill both intrigue and consolation. Let them listen. Early the next morning, Danielle Devenu awoke to her alarm. She showered in a private stall. The scent of heavily chlorinated water infiltrated her nostrils as cold water sprayed on and off in cycles. She exited the stall before her water supply for that day was exhausted. Danielle dressed. She checked herself in front of the LED-illuminated mirror. Then, she reached behind the mirror, pressing against recycled fiberglass until she found the photo. Danielle glanced at the image of her father, the only one she had, a moment she had no memory of, captured in time. For years, she had consoled herself with the fact that she turned her father into law enforcement, confessing Jacquise Devenu's so-called crimes, to protect him. To keep him from being relegated to the squalor and lower sections of the Phoenix Project. Now, years after her father's suicide in a Phoenix jail cell, Danielle Devenu fought the contradiction that she worked hand-in-hand -hand with his accusers and those who persecuted him. The survival of those in the project was more important than her loyalty to him. She returned the photo to its hiding place behind the mirror. Danielle left her room and followed foot traffic to a nearby lift. 
She pressed the button that scanned her fingerprint, and within seconds, a yellow grid flashed across the floor. Other citizens near the elevator backed away, knowing, of course, that Devenu was the only one allowed in the lift. She wondered if they knew, or cared why. She took the lift up, to which floor she did not know. Transparent doors opened. Devenu stepped out. She walked across white paneled tiles, past pale walls to the center of the room. Agent Danielle Devenu, she spoke, then added, reporting. The lights dimmed. Holographic projections emanated from the floor. As many times as she had done this since a central processor selected her as project leader, this was the part Danielle could never get used to. She saw the shape of twelve distorted, faceless bodies, some larger than others, some slender, some wide, some discernibly male, and others definitely feminine. Agent Devenu, the Shadow Council spoke in unison. The voices were disguised, compressed, or augmented. Thank you for executing the strategic decisions of this council. Are you prepared to make your report? I am, Devenu said. She swallowed hard and continued her prepared speech. The regeneration of General Benjamin Castro was mostly successful. Malfunctions with the cryostasis equipment caused complications, impairing the General's lower extremities. He is presently unable to walk while confined to the Phoenix Project. This should not present any problem in his ability to lead the exploratory mission to the surface. His consciousness is intact, and although there are gaps in his memory, Dr. Ganaya is confident appropriate stimuli will help restore his memory to full capacity. You are sure he is qualified to lead the mission? Asked the council. Yes, Devenu spoke confidently. The general's mental faculties are strong. The central processor was forward-thinking in its selection of the general as... There were a few other options. I understand, of course. The general is capable and Drs. Ganaya and Chang are on standby to facilitate the biological and engineering components of the operation. What about the central processor's other selections, this Major McGillicuddy and Dr. John Bath? There appears to be a disparity in their personalities. Devenu hesitated. There was nothing in the profiles of McGillicuddy or Bath that surprised or alarmed her. She couldn't help but wonder if the Council or the central processor knew what she did that her father, Jaquise Devenu, was an acquaintance of both men. Whether they were friends or not, she did not know. What she did know was that her father was arrested by Dana Marsh when Marsh was just a captain for the Phoenix Law Enforcement Agency. Major Leonard McGillicuddy's father, Mac, was Marsh's senior officer. Jaquise told his daughter about an adventure in rural Kentucky with Lieutenant Colonel Deer Midbath. Danielle rejected her father's nonsensical stories. Her benefactors called them a mental defect. That didn't change the fact that she loved her father. She missed him. She continued her report to the Shadow Council. General Castro is assured he can whip them into shape. That is, ensure their collaboration for the good of the venture. It is notable. Major McGillicuddy has violent tendencies. That is correct. Devenu replied. His talents may be critical on the surface. We don't know the dangers we might find there. And, the council continued, Dr. Bath is a free thinker, an anarchist. Are we sure he is satisfactory? 
As Devenu spoke, she wondered how it was possible the central processor could, at random, bring General Castro, Major McGillicuddy, and Dr. Bath together for the assignment. McGillicuddy and Bath's fathers had history with her own, and General Castro knew their parents. It could not be coincidence, and as much as she wanted to say something, to ask questions, Devenu did as she was expected, proving her loyalty to her faceless masters. Bath's involvement is a work in progress, Devenu explained, but following up on the decision of the central processor, he is brilliant, maybe even overqualified for the operation. His experience in multiple disciplines ensures he is more than an observer or analyst. We need him. Very well, Agent Devenu. Please proceed with your efforts and move into actualization stage. That is all. Thank you, said Devenu. I appreciate your confidence. Danielle did not enjoy these bizarre meetings with the council. They saw and knew everything about her. She did not see their faces and knew nothing of who they were. As she turned to make her exit, Shadow Council Member 7 spoke. Miss Devenu, please remain. All but one of the wispy holograms disintegrated. Miss Devenu, said the faceless Shadow Council Member 7, thank you for your assessment. My pleasure, said Devenu. I'm sorry, was there something else? The central processor selected the members of this team, said Shadow Council Member 7, presumably based on their aptitude to succeed. There is also the possibility that the computer is wrong. Danielle exhaled. With all due respect, it has always been my presumption, rather, I've always been told, that the central processor was infallible. Yes, yes, of course. That will always be the affirmation of this council. But, depending on the progress of your team, if things should go awry, if the volunteers are unable to work together in an acceptable fashion, we should consider the possibility that the computer is wrong. I don't understand. Danielle felt uncomfortable. For a moment, she thought she made out the shape of a man. Not just a man, a young man. I'm sure the general will perform admirably. But if Major McGillicuddy and Dr. Bath, the so-called best and brightest selections of the central processor, are unable to work together to produce results, we should consider that the computer may be incapable of selection. It may be necessary to withdraw these men in favor of more traditional candidates. Devenu thought it was odd the council member used the personal pronoun. That it, that he, said we. She was distracted, wondering about the council member's identity, and also what better suited and more sociable candidates could be chosen randomly for the upcoming mission. I'm sure based on their credentials, Devenu said, and their experience, Dr. Bath and the Major will... Yes, yes, I'm sure. But if they fail, or if they are unable to work together, that failure is on you, Agent Devenu, and the computer will select more suitable, less divisive explorers. Yes, I, I understand, Devenu replied. Yes, said Shadow Council Member 7. He paused, as if considering Devenu, watching her, seeking something about her. I think you do, he said. Then he added, Thank you, dear. That is all.
Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production. Based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.